And in addition to welcoming those of you here in the audience today, I'll remind you that there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to these, recording, uh, these lectures as recordings online, and that our banner lectures are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. And if you enjoy these programs and are not a member, I hope you'll consider supporting them by joining the Virginia Historical Society, which is easy to do at our website, www.vahistorical.org. And if you don't already, I'd like to also encourage you uh, to please follow the Virginia Historical Society on Facebook. I know you follow your grandkids on Facebook. Um, and um, you'll get to see some of the fabulous stuff that's happening, including some pictures of the delivery of our latest exhibition toys of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which opens on Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I know you're all going to enjoy that exhibition. So in her eye-opening book, Six Encounters with Lincoln, A President Confronts Democracy and Its Demons, Elizabeth Brown Pryor examines six striking and mostly unknown encounters that Abraham Lincoln had with his constituents. It's a collection of intriguing stories about a man who himself prized storytelling, and taken together they reveal his character and opinions in unexpected ways, illustrating his difficulties in managing a republic and creating a presidency. What this book shows most clearly is that greatness was not simply laid on Lincoln's shoulders like a mantle, but was won in fits and starts. The author, Elizabeth Brown Pryor, was tragically killed in Richmond in April 2015, just after completing the manuscript of Six Encounters with Lincoln. Fortunately, for those of us who knew Elizabeth and how hard she'd worked on the manuscript, her sister, Beverly Louise Brown, saw the book through publication. Tonight, she'll talk about her sister, the book, and the perils and delights in finishing another author's work. Beverly Louise Brown is a noted art historian who lives in London. Throughout her career, she's served as a curator and guest curator at a number of museums, including the Royal Academy of Arts in London, the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, and the National Gallery of Art in Washington, and has taught at Princeton, Harvard, and Brown University, and at Wellesley College. She's the author of numerous articles and books on Renaissance and Baroque art and on architecture. And tonight, I hope you'll please give a warm VHS welcome to Beverly Brown. Thank you. Um, after that, you may wonder why I'm going to talk about Abraham Lincoln. And full disclosure, I know very little about Abraham Lincoln other than what is in uh, Elizabeth's book. And I was very taken by the little movie we were just watching, uh, where it showed the reading room of the um, <clears throat> Virginia Historical Society, because a lot of this book and the research for it was done in that room. And, uh, I promise I'll only choke up at the beginning that uh, she really loved this institution. And so thank you to everyone here who 
helped her over the um, eight years that she worked on the book. Now, I know, or perhaps I don't know how to, <laughs> no, it isn't working. Oh, no. Ah, because like, okay. Uh, <laughs> now I know. I know that today is the wrong day to be celebrating Abraham Lincoln <laughs> because today is the day of the birthday of a great Virginia president, George Washington. And we all know that uh, George Washington was not one who relied on alternative facts, um, that he was a president who, uh, when I was a little girl, all learned the story of, you know, who chopped down the cherry tree, and father, it was I, I cannot tell a lie. Um, and we now probably also all know that that story is a complete myth. It was actually made up by one of his early biographers who thought that if he put stories like that in, he could sell more books. Um, <clears throat> but in many ways, that myth endures. It endures to the idea that today we should all be eating cherry pies. Um, and I would like to say that that sort of myth-making uh, is really what, in many ways, Elizabeth's book on Lincoln is about, um, that we either think of him as the majestic figure in the Lincoln Memorial uh, looking down at us, or that shining face staring it up from us from a handful of bright copper pennies. And one of the things that Elizabeth was very much aware of is something that um, Adam Gorosky said on the night that Lincoln was shot, that the murderer's bullet opens him to immortality, and that at that moment, our perception and how one saw Lincoln changed completely, that the haleography started instantly. So much so that by 1888, someone could say that hundreds of people are now engaged in smoothing out the lines on Lincoln's face so that he may be known not as he really was, but according to the poor standards as he should have been. And that sense that what we perceive of Lincoln, that we see Lincoln and so many Presidents have said, oh, yes, Lincoln is the president I look up to. I want to run the country just like Lincoln did. Well, in Democracy and Its Demons, Elizabeth gives you a chance to rethink that. And I, I should say that her book was originally called, or she wanted it to be called, Democracy and Its Demons, a rethinking of Abraham Lincoln through six striking encounters. And that part, which now is in the subtitle because the publisher, I tried really, really hard. That's one thing that I fought tooth and nail for, was to keep her original title, and I lost. Um, because they wanted the word Lincoln so that when you put it into Google, it'll pop up right away. So they switched it around. But you have to think about this book, and when you read it, which I hope that you all will, um, that it is about what in our government and the way that our system is set up that makes democracy sometimes difficult? Uh, what are the cogs that turn very slowly? Uh, the balance of power that the, our forefathers set up, you wanted to have 
uh, a check and balance system. So government moves very slowly sometimes, and Lincoln found that out uh, when he tried to order uh, executive orders and that the court then <laughs> shut down, um, that he found out that laws had to be passed not by him but by Congress. Now, he should have known that because he was a congressman beforehand, but that those problems uh, are inherent in our system, and we can see them playing out in front of us today. And she was very uh, aware of that. So when we look at Six Encounters with Lincoln, it is a way of stepping back and rethinking Lincoln. And the book takes place, these encounters, when he's actually president. So the first one is two days after he becomes president, and the last one is here in Richmond about five days before he is shot. So it's the span of his presidency, and she was very careful um, to have the sources that she uses from that time frame, not people who remembered him in 1888 and saw the wrinkles being taken off, but what people said in their diaries, in their letters, and in newspaper articles of the day. So she's very reliant not on <coughs> recollections, but on uh, history in real time. Now, the kinds of myths that one have with uh, George Washington, one can find with Lincoln as well. And I'm just going to give you one example. Uh, when Lincoln meets Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, and he meets her uh, at the White House, and it's come down in history that what he said to her was, so you're the little lady who made this big war. Um, and that has come down so much that in 2006, a statue uh, of Lincoln was put up in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, where you have, you know, very happily uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe smiling up at Mr. Lincoln, who's shaking her hand. Now, Elizabeth talks about that meeting in her book. And as it turns out, um, Lincoln didn't even recognize her. She came to a reception at the White House. She was with her uh, sister and another female friend. Uh, Lincoln didn't have a single idea who she was. Uh, the story, so you're the little lady who made this big war, was actually made up by her brother, who later put that in a biography of her. Um, and that in her letters and her sister's letters, they said that the whole thing was so awkward and that he was so clumsy, meaning Mr. Lincoln, that when they got back to their hotel suite at the Willard, which as you probably know is right across the street from the White House, um, that they were laughing so much that they could have bust a gusset. So that, um, so that, but the myth of that goes on. And it's that kind of myth, because it turns out that, as we'll see later on tonight, um, Lincoln had a great deal of difficulty in dealing uh, with powerful women, that he felt awkward and ill at ease, and he basically tried to ignore or not interact uh, with them at all. Now, when, uh, <laughs> when Elizabeth died, um, and I, I found out I was in London, and I got a phone call, and uh, I came to Richmond, and, and this is what I found. I found her study, uh, and it was piled high with the uh, manuscript for her book and her various uh, Lincoln memorabilia, including um, various cartoons and the uh, card. It was actually a birthday card that she'd given my mother. 
uh, about Lincoln as it, and his rapper name One Cent, and then she thought it was such a good car, <laughs> she 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 took it back from my mother, and um, and said and always said, <clears throat> you know, when the book comes out, that's going to be the invitation to the party to celebrate it, um, and. Um, <laughs> a little picture of her. She always thought of herself as a monkey, and so she always had a little monkey in her little typewriter. And, but in this room, um, I found the manuscript for the book, and this is the state that it was in. It was completely finished, and I want to make um, that very clear, that all the words that you read in this book, all of the footnotes, all of the bibliography, she had actually completed. And she had completed it the January before she was killed in April. She'd called me uh, in London. And I think I could probably tell you all the truth as opposed to what you will read in the uh, preface that I wrote. Because when she called, <laughs> because, some, because some of you, and someone reminded me of this tonight, because when she called me, what she said was, <laughs> uh, in January, she said, I finally finished The Tyrant Lincoln. Um, but, but I thought that it would be better in the introduction to say, I finally finished Honest Abe. So, uh, uh, but, but she always referred to him as The Tyrant Lincoln, because that's actually what everyone in the South referred to him um, as. But this is what she, and she was very methodical, much more so than her older sister, because everything that she was in the process of rechecking before she turned the manuscript in was highlighted in yellow. And the little pencil marks you see are actually mine, because what I did is I took this completed manuscript and I went through and I checked all the page numbers and all of the questions that she'd asked. And I eventually went back and checked every single footnote and every single bibliographic reference to make certain that they were correct. Um, and the other thing that she, um, had, she had ordered about four photographs. Now in the book you'll see there are 65, 67, something like that, um, photographs. Uh, and she hadn't left a list. I mean, she clearly in her mind knew what she was going to need to order in the next few weeks. Now, luckily, as an art historian, one thing I'm really good at is ordering photographs. And so I decided, if I was reading this book, what I would like to have illustrated. So the illustration uh, selection is really almost completely mine. And I did find out, I did, you know, in all truth, I made a few changes, not to the text, but um, to footnotes. I probably made maybe seven or eight. And one of them, for instance, is that the uh, Harper's Weekly cartoon that we see here, and we'll talk more about it a little bit later on, of Columbia confronting Lincoln and some soldiers about uh, how many soldiers are dying in Fredericksburg. Um, I found in the Library of Congress the original drawing for, for the cartoon. But interestingly, in the original drawing, uh, it was Uncle Sam and General McClellan meeting Lincoln rather than Columbia. So I went ahead and published the uh, cartoon because she, she talked about the cartoon, so I knew she had wanted to illustrate that. But the footnote tells you, so if you're a really picky reader, you, you'll find out that there is um, an original drawing for the cartoon with a different figure in it in the footnote. And in other cases, she talked about things such as uh, a grand presidential party given at the White House. 
And this party was highly controversial, and she goes on quite a bit about that. And I found an illustration of it in Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, and I thought, well, that's perfect. I, you know, so that's sort of the way that I worked about putting illustrations in, that things that I thought would be nice to have illustrated uh, are basically what gets illustrated in the, in the book. Um, she started out not to write a book about Lincoln at all. On the night that she won the Lincoln Prize for uh, reading the man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters, um, <clears throat> she had spent the entire day in the New York Historical Society doing research. And she came back to change for dinner before this. Uh, it was actually a very, very large bank, about 500 people at this dinner. And she was just elated. Um, she was so elated, she had to change into my new Armani jacket that I had actually never worn. Um, and, and she said, as I put it on, she said, you know, that would look really good over my black dress. So, so she, she, wore, she wore my jacket. Uh, but she, the reason that she was so happy, she was happy about receiving the prize, but that day, as she was sitting there doing research in the New York Historical Society, she found a completely unknown um, drawing of Abraham Lincoln. And it was in a letter written by someone named uh, Lucian Waters, uh, who you see his uh, picture there on his card, uh, visitation card. And he was writing to his brother. Now, he was a member of something called Scots 900, who at that particular time were acting as the bodyguards to President Lincoln. So when President Lincoln sort of went up on the hills above Washington, um, where the air was better in the middle of summer and things, he, th this company of men escorted him up. And Waters wanted a furlough, because if he got a furlough, he could go back to New York, where he was from, and he could recruit more uh, soldiers, and if he did that, he would get a promotion. So that was his idea. And he goes up to ask uh, Lincoln for the, um, to sign the furlough. And he saw Lincoln sitting on the porch of the White House uh, with his legs up over his head. You can see him. Let's see if I can see There he is. There's Lincoln with his hat and his legs like a grasshopper up over his head. Um, and that is, in fact, uh, as Elizabeth says in the book, Lots of people describe that's how Lincoln sat all the time. He seemed to be very, this gangly big man was very comfortable that way. But what was so incredible about this encounter that Waters tells to his brother is that Lincoln, before he could even say a word, said to him, you must have come about those uh, eternal damn niggers, niggers. And he was so amazed about that that he put exclamation points after it and underlined it, nigger, nigger, exclamation point. And the reason he did that is that just like today, that's a very derogatory term. That was not a term that the President of the United States or any polite gentleman would have used in uh, the 19th century. And what's even more interesting, and what Elizabeth was able to do with this story, is that this actually happened just two weeks after Lincoln had presented the uh, draft of the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet, and it was two weeks before the actual announcement was made. So clearly, that whole um, idea of African Americans and their freedom were at the top of his mind. 
What's more interesting is that Waters himself, whether Lincoln knew it or not, was incredibly active in trying to help uh, slaves as they escaped from the South into free territory in the North, uh, what were known as the uh, contrabands, and that a lot of them followed the army troops. Uh, and some of the army troops, uh, like people like Waters, tried to help them, uh, tried to give them jobs, tried to make certain that they were not taken back to their owners uh, across the Mason-Dixon line. And <clears throat> so that what she builds in that particular chapter, which starts out with this very brief encounter, is a much more complex web of the question of emancipation, Lincoln's feelings toward emancipation, and why he made the decision, uh, which partially had to do with political expedience, because he thought that it was going to end the war um, sooner. Now, <clears throat> Lincoln. Um, did meet other soldiers, and uh, in the first chapter of the book, called A Weary Handshake, uh, it happens two days after he becomes president. And here you see him on a battlefield meeting soldiers. But that particular day, uh, in the East Room of the White House, and we know that this is the East Room of the White House during Lincoln's time, because if you look at the chandeliers, they're the old chandeliers. Those chandeliers get changed during the Grant administration. So those, we know from the chandeliers that's what, the, what it looked like in 1861. And it was a rather shabby, dull room. It's not uh, quite as brilliant and beautiful as the East Room as we think of it uh, today. It sort of, it basically needed new wallpaper and drapes and things like that. Um, <clears throat> however, in that room, he meant uh, 76 men who were the top of the Army and the Navy. They were introduced to him by General Winfield Scott, uh, who was the highest-ranking general in the Army. And they were introduced by rank, going down through various generals and colonels. Um, Lincoln was exceptionally ill at ease that day. He himself had virtually no military uh, training or background. He didn't understand the very rigid way that the military worked. He wasn't at ease with all of the spit and polish of these men in their uh, blue suits with shining gold buttons and braid. And <clears throat> he had, at an earlier uh, meeting with, with the military, simply walked out in the middle of it uh, with his wife to do something else. So there was a great deal of tension and ill at ease on his part, uh, along with the soldiers who were looking to the, this first meeting with their commander in chief, knowing that a war uh, was about to start, uh, not getting very reassured. Now, among the people that were there that day um, <clears throat> was Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee. Uh, and <clears throat> Robert E. Lee, as we now know, uh, two months later, uh, was going to resign and fight for the uh, South. And in fact, so many people, at least a third of the men in that room that day, resigned to fight for the South. And so many of them were doing that, that there was actually a little printed form. Um, and they would just fill in the names. This is one from actually here in the Virginia Historical Society for uh, Jeb Stewart. And they just, you know, it's just sort of fill in the blank, fill in the name of the person and sign it, and, and then they had resigned. Um, it was interesting because Lincoln had met Lee before. They had both served on an, an inaugural committee. 
at one point together, so they must have at least shaken hands, so they sort of knew each other. And what Lincoln did is that he wanted to promote Lee um, up to a general, which in the army was a very hard thing to do. It was basically the only way you could move up is somebody at the top to die or resign, and then everybody could move up. And so sometimes you could serve in the lower ranks of the officers for 57 years before you ever got into a chance. And so the top part of the army that Lincoln inherited was full of very old men. Um, but he didn't pay any attention to this, this system of how you were supposed to move up, which actually irritated the army and people in the army. But he asked Lee if he would you know, become a general for the Union. And Lee, of course, didn't take him up on that and immediately left and went um, to the South. Now, another person um, <clears throat> that was not at this meeting in the White House, but shows you sort of Lincoln's ill at ease with um, the military and understanding how the military did, was somebody named Colonel Elmer Ellsworth. Now, he was, he was from Chicago, and he had started his own sort of little military squad called the Zouaves, uh, based on um, <clears throat> the French Foreign Legion. And they actually wore sort of little French Foreign Legion uniforms. And they liked to do fancy parades and things like that. Um, and he took a real shine to Elmer Ellsworth and, had, and invited him to be on the train between um, <clears throat> Illinois and Washington before his inauguration. And he then promoted him way above his rank and put him in charge of all of these things. Now, that irritated people, but not as much as what he did, because he was actually the first major casualty of the war, because he decided, all on his own, when he saw a Confederate flag, that he would um, <clears throat> go up and pull it down. And as he did that, he was killed by, as you can see here, rebel soldiers are um, <clears throat> shooting him. But what happens is then he is taken back to the East Room of the White House. Notice the chandelier from the Lincoln administration. Um, and has his funeral in the East Room. And at the foot of his coffin, there is Lincoln mourning. Lincoln loved to tell stories. Uh, he was a great storyteller by all um, accounts, uh, many of them very body and uh, very off color. But he liked a joke and he liked a good tale. And Elizabeth um, you know, says it's very strange that um, he never really took up this story because this story was a really good one. And it happened in June of 1861, so not long after he had been um, inaugurated. And they built a little gazebo on the White House lawn. And the military band was playing. And the president was to raise the stars and stripes. Now, if you look at this and you think about it for a minute, you can tell that that little hole at the top of the tent is far too small for the great big flag to get through. And in fact, that was what happened, that Lincoln did raise the flag. But as he did it and had to pull really, really hard, 
all of the stars and stripes came off the flag. Um, now, I know it's, a, but, and, and, and in fact, if you have to think, you know, flags were not printed as they are today, but that each star was sewn on and each, the stripes were sewn on uh, to make the flag so that, you know, it could, they could come apart. And what Elizabeth realized is that this particular uh, picture of the event really actually showed Lincoln. Um, and you can see there is Lincoln pulling up on the flag with his beard, and he's all yanking away at it. And what's interesting is when I went and talked to the people at the Library of Congress who owned this drawing, and this, Elizabeth had actually found this drawing, so I knew that she was going to want to publish it in the book. Um, and I pointed out to them that it actually had Lincoln in it, and nobody at the Library of Congress had ever noticed that Lincoln was actually in that drawing. Uh, but what's even more, what was interesting to Elizabeth about this is not only is it the kind of story that Lincoln would have liked to have told, but it was a, obviously the kind of the story with all of those um, stars and stripes coming apart. If you look, this is an envelope. Um, you know how you used to get envelopes, overseas envelopes that was a piece of paper and then you could lick it and, and it was all made one very neat little thing that didn't weigh very much. Well, in the Civil War, there were letters like that as well. And here is one, uh, not a star must fall. And so that was actually, at this point, not another state should succeed. And so that the story itself, even though you can find, as Elizabeth did, people in their diaries talking about it, and actually a newspaper said, you know, the president rose the flag on the White House lawn today, nobody exploited the fact that the president had actually thrown the stars off the flag, um, which was perhaps lucky for him because the press did go after him in cartoons. And remember, we saw this cartoon before. Um, and what Columbia is saying to you, where are my 5,000 uh, sons murdered at Fredericksburg? And Lincoln, rather than answering that question, says, this reminds me of a little joke. And apparently, that's what Lincoln did all the time. He would walk into a cabinet meeting, and if things weren't quite going his way, he would tell a little story, and everybody would laugh, and he'd get up and he'd walk out. Um, <laughs> he also um, off, he, he read a lot of contemporary um, literature about jokes and stories, petroleum H, um, <clears throat> or petroleum, or Vesuvius petroleum, Conby Nash stories and things like that. And he would write down the lines that he liked and then memorize them so that he could put them into little tales. And he, he, his father apparently had been a very good storyteller as well, but he was basically a very shy man and that it was a way of disarming people and not having to engage in a real conversation. That if you could tell a little story, you didn't have to actually answer the question. It's sort of like a president today going to a press conference and somebody saying, you know, did you mean this? And they saying, well, I have a little story I want to tell you. And then just never answering uh, the question. And, and Lincoln was very, very good at that. Um, but the press, um, throughout the war um, was very um, critical and uh, very sarcastic at times about it. And here's one, uh, keep on track. 
And so he's keeping on track. But if you look at how the union, which is what he's keeping on track, he's burning logs. And can you see written on the log is the word democracy. So that's what it, in order to keep the engine and the war on track, what Lincoln wants to burn is democracy, which goes back to what I said earlier, that the idea of this book was democracy and its demons, those things that happened with our 16th president that um, <clears throat> kept, at times, democracy from moving forward. Now, some of the people that he met with, um, <clears throat> like John Ross, and Elizabeth was very, uh, I mean, how many people know, does anybody know who John Ross was? I'm sure that some of you probably do. Um, he was the chief of the Cherokee Nation. And he was, as Elizabeth said, better educated than Lincoln, better dressed than Lincoln, <laughs> um, <clears throat> better spoken than Lincoln, and the leader of a nation. So he came as another national leader talking to a national leader and saying um, <clears throat> that the government of America was not treating his citizens under the laws that they had passed to look after the Indians, that they were going back on the promises that they had made, and that this was making a number of people in his tribe, including his brother-in-law, uh, wanting to go and fight for the Confederacy, uh, and what was Lincoln going to do about this? What kind of promises could Lincoln get uh, to his tribe so that they would not go and join the Confederacy? Uh, and he left empty-handed and um, <clears throat> without an actual answer, much to um, the detriment of all of the Cherokees and uh, ultimately um, <clears throat> to the Union Army as well. Now, John Ross was not the only Indian who came to um, visit uh, Lincoln. A lot of them came. Here you can see a, a picture of a whole lot of them on the uh, White House steps. And Lincoln himself had some uh, experience with Indians. He had fought in the Black Hawk War uh, of 1832. And there wasn't really, he wasn't from that part of um, the country, but he, he went up to a sort of northern Illinois, Wisconsin, and joins in this uh, war. I don't know, it, it's not clear whether or not he thought he could earn money this way, or he was uh, looking for a job or whatever. But he goes and he joins. And he was elected a captain. Now, you can see a later uh, illustration of this. We have no illustrations of the Black Hawk War itself. But a, a later idea of it, you can see, you know, he looks, he sort of looks like he's at a modern day boot camp. Uh, and, and he's all, you know, clean shaven and the American flag in the background and all of his little uh, troops behind him. In fact, he was horrible um, as a captain. He couldn't actually get his troops, A, to stop drinking, and B, to actually follow him through a gate in a, uh, in a fence so that they actually couldn't move ahead. And the second year, he joined up again, and he was not elected captain. He just went back to being a private. So that was all of the um, experience that he had. And they hadn't really seen any uh, real battles. But he had uh, probably uh, a sort of prejudice 
uh, inborn or inherited in his family against Indians because his grandfather had been scalped by an Indian. So he didn't necessarily have a favorable idea of Indians. And it's very interesting to think when uh, you know, one talks about, uh, as Lincoln does, you know, freedom for all. Um, he didn't mean freedom for all. He meant freedom for some. And some uh, of those people did not include Indians, uh, Native Americans, women, even most men. So you have to actually think, what does he mean by all? It isn't what we might today mean by all. Um, Black Hawk survived the war, and he was taken prisoner and brought east. And he was made by Jackson to dress up um, in what was called European dress, which seems very strange to me. I mean, they called it European dress, I suppose. <laughs> I would have said, you know, well, maybe American dress, but they didn't see it that way. They saw that what they were wearing was European as opposed to native. He had with him uh, someone known as the prophet and then his son. And this painting was actually painted of him here in Richmond um, when he was paraded around. And it actually is now in the uh, Library of Virginia. Um, and he was made to go up and down uh, the East Coast so that he could be pointed out as the savage uh, Native American who had been made to change um, his ways. Now, that kind of uh, thing happened under uh, Lincoln's administration as well. Here we have a picture of the Southern Plains delegation that came to the White House in 1863. The woman standing on the end of the top row is Mary Lincoln. Uh, person in the center of it is uh, John Hay, uh, Lincoln's secretary. And seated down below are a number of Indian chiefs. Actually, in the book uh, where this photograph is, uh, I name who all of them are. And I actually have forgotten all of their names. They have names like uh, Yellow Bull and Red Fox, you know, Running Water, the kind of typical Native American names. And they're all wearing a peace badge which uh, President Lincoln gave them. Many of them died wearing those peace badges, which were supposed to be a symbol that the United States government wouldn't go after them, but they were, uh, in many cases, later killed by American soldiers. But after they came to the White House, uh, P.T. Barnum came down and met them all and thought that they would be just the right thing to put on display in New York. So he takes them all back to New York, and he puts them on display, and he would go up to them and he'd put his you know, hand on their shoulder and he'd, he would say, this is Yellow Bear. He murdered and raped 27 women and he'll do the same to you. And he went through all of them like that and after a few weeks they finally understood what he was doing and then refused to go on his um, little show anymore. Um, other Indians, like, um, I always like this, the, the Chief Hole in the Day. Uh, Chief Hole in the Day actually uh, <clears throat> negotiated with Jeff Davis, who you see here, to fight for the Confederacy. And one interesting thing, when these people, you know, the North clearly thought, you know, oh, these Indians are going are gonna to drink, you know, and they're going to be... Um, <clears throat> very much na native. It's very interesting because by this time, the, the kind of savage American 
was a tale that didn't really exist and who the Indians were, but it was a, a kind of history that had been already passed down uh, for a, at least 150 years. But in any case, um, <clears throat> they, people in the Northern Army complained about the Indians fighting for the Confederacy because they said that they uh, used guerrilla warfare rather than <laughs> the kind of warfare everybody else was using. And of course, they were really quite effective at that. Um, <clears throat> And there were Indians that fought for the Union as well. And here you have uh, a picture of some Indians in um, actually what is now present-day Wisconsin um, signing in. And what's so pathetic uh, and about this uh, picture and the Indians, if you look at the rags that they're actually wearing, that they the only clothes that they have. And there were quite a number one um, of the Indians who fought for the North actually later became a general and served uh, on General Grant's um, <clears throat> committee of, of officers. So there were Indians fighting on both sides. Um, but the thing that was probably the most tragic about Lincoln and the Indians um, had to do with the Sioux uprising in, in Minnesota, where um, the Sioux were trying to hold on to land that had been given to them. And they actually hadn't killed anyone or done anything, that they were just demanding the right to stay on that land and farm the land. And the government wanted to move them off the land. And they actually fabricated, it seems, stories. As you can see, this little boy in the cartoon saying, you know, he did it. He, he was the poor Indian on his hands and legs was the bad one. And they rounded up hundreds of them finally with this war, put them in jail, and many of them hadn't done anything. They hadn't even fought. And the story actually has a very sad end because the life, some of them, if they were, they were told that if they said that they had done something wrong, then they would be let off, but they weren't. And Lincoln, in the end, um, ordered the execution of 39 of them, and you can see uh, a newspaper uh, on the top uh, reporting of that and then an actual photograph of the 39 Sioux that were hung the day after Christmas on the order of uh, President Lincoln. Um, he didn't get along much better with women. Uh, and as um, <clears throat> I, I said before, you know, that he, he didn't really want to talk to uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, nor did he, he wouldn't actually even talk to Clara Barton. She came day after day and sat um, outside his office where there was a lobby where you could sit to get an appointment to see the president, and he refused to see her, even though she had come to help uh, with a plan that she had to let families know when one of their family members had been killed. And Lincoln wouldn't even give her the time of day. And she was already very famous at this point. He simply said, no, she just has to go to the War Department. Um, he did not talk to Jane uh, Swizzlehelm, who was the editor of a paper in Minnesota, a very influential uh, woman. And she came to talk to him on behalf of things that were happening uh, in Minnesota. He refused to actually see her. And he had 
Um, <clears throat> nothing good to say about Anna E. Dickinson, although Anna, D Anna <clears throat> Dickinson, who is a, a, obviously a very pretty and young woman, ended up giving a speech before the uh, joint houses of Congress about the time that Lincoln was trying to run for re-election. And she was scathing about Lincoln, although at the very last sentence, she suddenly changes her mind and says something positive and says, yes, we should re-elect him. But he clearly didn't want to meet her either because she had been campaigning all over the country for trying to get him to change um, certain things that he was doing. Um, this basically, the Vanity Fair, sort of shows you uh, exactly what um, Lincoln thought of all of these women from what was known as the Ladies' League uh, who were petitioning for things. And a lot of the things that they were petitioning for later became um, what would be known as the suffragette movement. And in fact, two of the women uh, who were on the International Council for Women that met in 1888 and became really the leaders of the suffragette movement are um, Carla, whoops, go back. Um, no, no, Billy. Um, Carly Stanton, right there, and um, person whose name I now forget, uh, who is the most famous suffragette of all, um, uh, Susan B. Anthony, um, who is right here. And both of them uh, were very, uh, they started really uh, during the war. And one of the things that they, the women, really did was uh, what was known as the United States Sanitary Commission. And the Sanitary Commission uh, really did all sorts of, of things, not only for caring for people in hospitals, caring for the sick uh, at home, um, working in parlors to knit socks and uh, scarves and things, and also at uh, what were called fairs. The Sanitary Commission would have fairs where they would sell things to raise money for the war effort. And they played a major, major role in helping the Union win the war. And Lincoln refused to acknowledge any of the women in this organization. He went to Baltimore, he spoke um, about the Sanitary Commission, and he thanked all of the men who he saw as heading up the Sanitary Commission and didn't thank a single woman who had done all of this work. So his relationship um, to women, let's say, was not one of ease. And as Elizabeth points out in her book, um, it was not different from that of a lot of men at that time. Um, the final chapter is, uh, takes place here in Richmond. Uh, about Duff Green, uh, a man with a long beard and a menacing stick. Um, <laughs> Duff Green uh, was somebody that Lincoln actually had known for a very long time. He had first met him uh, in Illinois, and when he was a young congressman in Washington, he had lived in Duff Green's house, and he was probably related, or not probably, he was related to Duff Green by marriage. So when Lincoln um, came into Virginia on the SS Malvern uh, in <clears throat> April, uh, April 4th, 1865, um, he quickly let 
uh, Duff Green come aboard, although a lot of people said they didn't like the, the menacing stick so much. They thought that he, and I, I think Duff Green probably did, you know, use it to hit people. Um, but he, Duff Green wanted to talk to Lincoln about a very specific thing, and that was how, as we now knew the war was coming to an end, the South was going to be reintegrated back into the North. In other words, what was the reconstruction plan that Lincoln had? And as Elizabeth talks about in, in this chapter, that Lincoln had never quite understood the South and the Southern mentality. And Duff Green realized that, and she was trying to get Lincoln to see that it was not enough to say, we've um, conquered you in the war, and now you have to come back, that there were going to have to be concessions, there were going to have to be a way of peacefully integrating the North and the South again. But Lincoln didn't actually want to hear that. And of course, we don't really know what his reconstruction plan would have been. Uh, we do know that on that day, this is a, a drawing which was later made into a print, that he walks up the hill, that, and it was largely reported um, that a lot of black Americans came out and celebrated um, but none of the um, gentry of uh, Richmond came out uh, to celebrate, as one might imagine. Um, and then he, uh, then he invited his wife and General Grant's wife to come down, and they gave a dinner party in the uh, Confederate White House, which made people even more unhappy. Um, Lincoln um, in the South was really seen as the devil incarnate. And here you can see in the uh, Southern Illustrated News um, a picture of Lincoln taking off his face and under his mask he is, uh, in fact, the devil. Um, Lincoln in the South was uh, referred to as the tyrant Lincoln. And those of you who know Elizabeth know that that is precisely how she always referred to Lincoln. She referred to him as the tyrant Lincoln. She was always, she took a very southern view of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln in that respect. It is the um, hollow crown, um, as you know, is a, a phrase that is used to describe three of Shakespeare's plays, Richard III and the two, uh, Henry IV plays, part one and part two, about um, rulers who seize the crown, but once they get the crown, they realize they have nothing. And what she says about Lincoln, which you know, bears a moment of thought, is that he never was the president of the entire United States, that when he was inaugurated, there were states that had already succeeded, and when he was killed, the war had not ended and the states had not come back together. So he never got to actually serve as president of the United States. Um, but he did love Shakespeare. And in the epilogue to the book, she talks about how he always carried a copy of Macbeth uh, in his pocket and he would bring it out and quote from it. And it's interesting to see, he, he liked the history plays, he didn't like the comedies, um, and, but that a lot of the lessons that he saw in governing must have come from his reading of Shakespeare. It's ironic that he didn't actually, though, use Shakespeare's 
own way of writing as a way of writing himself. And as she points out, we remember, you know, three or four brilliant pieces of uh, almost poetry that Lincoln did in the Gettysburg Address in the second inaugural um, address, but that most of his correspondence, if you read it, if you look at the 10 volumes of Lincoln correspondence, it is very humdrum, it is very dull, it is very day-to-day, -day. it's about um, running and doing things, it is not at all poetic. So that in a sense, that too is a myth that has come down to us about Lincoln, that he is a great writer, when in truth he only wrote a couple of great, um, great things. The, uh, the book um, you know, shows Lincoln not necessarily in a way that you might want to think about Lincoln. It is provocative in that way from the beginning when he comes to Washington hiding on a train as a Highland uh, Scottish dancer uh, so that he won't be recognized. Here you see him poking out of the boxcar. Um, or as you see him later, uh, after his son had died, walking the streets uh, of Washington at night on a little midnight thinky uh, in a very melancholy way. Um, the book shows you him uh, with all of his human foibles, not just all of his greatness, which is certainly there as well. Um, <clears throat> Elizabeth always said that when the book came out, she knew that those people who wanted to polish the halo we're going to be unhappy. Um, that, and in fact, if you read some of the reviews, yes, they're very unhappy. The, the Wall Street Journal said you know, that if she had lived, um, she would have changed the book and she would have uh, seen you know, the light of day and she would have loved Lincoln. Um, those of you who knew her and, and met her here in Richmond and ever heard her talk about Lincoln um, know that she probably only would have made it more negative. Um, <laughs> And that she, would, she always said she was going to have to go into exile when the book came out. Um, she, now, whether or not she meant that that was, she, when she worked for the State Department, there were only <clears throat> two postings that she said she, you should never take. One was to the land of no dry cleaning, and the other was to um, a country that had recently changed its name. And I'm not certain whether she was going to pick one of those countries for exile or that um, she probably was going to come and sit in my living room in London was, was really probably what she was going to do. But she knew that it would be provocative because she know, knew that people weren't wanting always to look at Lincoln in another way. And so on that, I'd like to give Lincoln the last word. Biographies, as generally written, are not only misleading but false. The author makes a wonderful hero of his subject. He magnifies his perfections, if he has any, and suppresses his imperfections. History is not history unless it is the truth. Thank you. I'm happy to, to answer questions, uh, but I do forewarn you that if they're very specific about Lincoln, I might not know the right truthful answer. <laughs> First of all, I'm sure we all so appreciate what you gave to us today and 
the insights and, and sharing it. I'm certain your sister would have been incredibly proud. Thank you. I wonder if you could share with us, perhaps going back to the youth you shared with your sister, where did she get this curiosity from? Where did, what drove her to take on uh, these, these two tales, one of Lee and one of, of Lincoln, and, and undoubtedly she would have, had she lived, perhaps gone on to, to do more exploring. What, what was it about her personality or her background or education that um, brought that about? Oh, well, that, the, she actually, I mean, she was trained as a historian. And her first major book was on Clara Barton, Clara Barton, uh, Professional Angel. And she wrote that before she went in the State Department. Sort of to, on either end of her diplomatic career that lasted 25 years, so she was a foreign service officer for the uh, State Department, um, <clears throat> that she had published the book on Clara, and then she spent 25 years in the State Department. And when she came out of the State Department, she wrote the book on Robert E. Lee. Um, and before that, she had um, worked uh, in Northern Virginia and in Washington, D.C., and in Maryland for uh, the Park Service as a historian. And she had worked both at um, the Clara Barton House in Glen Oaks and at Arlington House. So that was actually where her interest in both Clara and Lee um, came from. She wrote the book on Lee because when she had worked on Clara way back in the uh, early 80s, she had met someone named Mrs. Zimmerman who was um, a direct descendant of Robert E. Lee, and she had a lot of Robert E. Lee letters. And she told Elizabeth that those letters weren't so positive, so she was just going to burn them all. And Elizabeth didn't like that idea. And she told her, you know, you don't have to burn them. She said, you know, you could give them to the Library of Congress and that you could list who could see them or you could put a lock on them for a certain number of years and all of this. And she didn't really think anything else about that. But when she was working on Capitol Hill, she was the um, Foreign Service Advisor to both the House and the Senate. And while she was there, um, the Library of Congress got in touch with her through her publisher, which was Penn State Press on Clara, saying that um, everyone who Mrs. Zimmerman said could see those Lee letters had died except her, and did she want to look at them? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so she said, you know, she have anything else better to do at our lunch hour. So she went over to the Library of Congress, and she immediately got hooked and wanted to work on, on Lee. And so that's when she started working on Lee. And then you know, more letters were discovered in a trunk in Alexandria and, and things. And, and so that's how that uh, project came about. And she spent a lot of time in Richmond. She had a fellowship. And she was here at the Virginia Historical Society working on Lee. And she so loved Richmond, she decided that uh, she was going to retire from the State Department and move to Richmond because she thought she could get a much nicer house in Richmond than Washington, D.C., and um, which was true. She did. And um, <clears throat> she, but no sooner was she here when she, she had that chance thing in, in New York where she found this picture of Lincoln, and she started working on, on Lincoln. She hadn't set out to work on Lincoln. So uh, she was working on other stories. She was interested in the Cherokees and why they fought for the South. And she was interested in somebody um, who was a friend of Clara Barton's. And, all of those um, <clears throat> things she then saw that she could weave together into a much larger story. Her 
on the other uh, part of your question, her real interest in uh, American history is, and I suppose my interest in, in history came from our mother, who, um, who unfortunately didn't live to see this book either. But, um, my mother grew up sitting on a porch in Indiana listening to her great-grandfather who had served in the Civil War tell stories about the Civil War and Grandpa Kenley died when mother was 18. Now in family lore we always say that he was 104 but I think he was actually something like 96 but in any case um, <clears throat> it was, a, it was an, an incredible to think that there was one generation between someone who fought in the Civil War and uh, us, there was you know, mother, there was someone who fought in the Civil War who knew him, mother, and then us who passed down all these stories. And that was really how you know, we got hooked. Um, I, I have to tell you, I'm 99 years old and <laughs> my, uh, I'm, I'm gaining attention. Uh, my, my grandfather, my father lived outside of Boonville, Indiana. Ah. And he was the first one to ever go to high school. And he walked seven miles every Monday morning in order to go to high school in Boonville, Indiana. I know and where Boonville is. He told me that he swam in the spring, the, the creek where, where Abraham Lincoln did. Yeah, because their family, I mean, it was, it was interesting to our family, because our family was from that thing, and our family, just like Lincoln's, and maybe your family too, came from, from Virginia, through Virginia, through Kentucky, into southern Indiana. And when Elizabeth was working on the book, she followed that trail and actually found um, the grave of Gam Grandpa Kenley's mother who had died on the trip doing that into southern Indiana. So that, you know, there was a very common way for family, you know, for as people moved west to do yeah. that. Yes. Uh, all I got to say is, well, I could say a million, but uh, I, uh, uh, the, the wonderful things come out of believing myths sometimes. And the other half of that is that people that do evil can do good. Yes, I think that and, and Elizabeth we, would have agreed. Yes, and uh, I just uh, love the fact that my father was inspired by Lincoln to be the first one to go to high school. And his, one of the stories that uh, he lived by was that uh, Lincoln uh, had come to Boonville to borrow one of the books uh, that he read, Lincoln read, uh, by the way, it's not a myth, is it, that Lincoln did read books? Oh, yeah, no, Lincoln, no. <laughs> okay. I don't, no, okay. I, don't, I don't think that's a myth at all. In fact, no, I think that Lincoln, you know, for his day and for that part of Indiana was extraordinarily well-educated, and that, you know, and he was encouraged in that both by his, apparently his mother and his stepmother. Um, uh, somebody should ask me about my father's mother because she was, my grandfather went back to Kentucky to get her and they fell in love in one week and she came to be, a, that's another story. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>